We're going to continue our sermon series this morning, looking at preparing the way. We're looking at clearing obstacles that stand in our way of a life that greater resembles Christ and more and more looks to the model and uh, the image and the model of Christ. And today we're going to be talking about something that Steve Brading mentioned uh, when he came to speak to us a few weeks ago. It's something that's been referenced in a number of our sermons, uh, the series I know Rob uh, referenced it, and Georgie Williams had a prophetic word about it a couple of weeks ago on the same day, I think. And that's the fear of the Lord. So this morning I'm going to be speaking on the fear of the Lord versus the fear of man. Um, as Steve said, revival preaching has often concerned, been concerned with the judgment of God, hell, uh, the fear of God due to his holiness. Uh, and as I've been looking at this theme uh, in preparation for this, I've, it's really come clear to me why. Um, that when we hold the fear of God tight, we're less likely to fall into thinking about cheap grace, uh, me, my desires, my culture, all of those things often fall out the bottom as we hold tight to the doctrine of the fear of God. And it puts God in his rightful place. But I also understand that fear is a really strange concept uh, in our day and age when we're talking about God. It's not something we talk about a lot. And because of that, it, it sort of has some interesting connotations that I want to sort of go through this morning. I don't know what you think of when I talk about fear. It could be childhood fears. It could be phobias that you have. Um, at this point, I should say that I... When I'm doing my teacher training, they always put these slides that say, like, trigger warning, like, on the front of it. So, you know, if you have any childhood fears of these things, I'm incredibly sorry. But when I was a kid, this terrified me. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely terrified me, and so did this. They were the stuff of nightmares. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Those, yeah, yes, before you don't know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, that's the child catcher. And the name suggests it, child catcher. And on the right-hand side, there's the Wicked Queen from Snow White. Absolutely terrified me um, when I was a child. And you probably have things as well. I mean, we kind of go through certain almost culture fearful things. I don't know, the Weeping Angels in Doctor Who, they were like a sort of culturally known as being scary. Um, the only other one I have is also a Doctor Who reference, which is the, the gas mask people. Whoop. No, nasty. Um, but you probably have your own things that you think of when you think of sort of fear and those things. But is this comparable with the fear of the Lord? No, it's not. I was scared of these things, and there were things that you were scared of, but it's not the same as having the fear when we talk about the fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So it's something that prolongs life. But what is fearing God? Is it cowering whenever we approach God? Is it just being respectful and that's sort of a ye olde term for it? Is that all it is? Is it even something you think of in your daily life? Maybe not. Maybe this is the first time you've thought about fearing God ever. Maybe this is the first time you've thought about fearing God this week, this day. Maybe this hour, if you're particularly focused on it. Have we, as Christians, moved beyond fearing God? Is this something that culturally and in terms of a New Testament covenant thing we've moved beyond? 
Well, some Christians do say that. And there are some verses that seem a little strange if when we read them. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And all of these are amazing, wonderful verses. And I'm sure there'll be some of you out here who are thinking, yeah, those verses have really, really helped me. And so it seems at a glance that what these passages are saying is we don't do fear anymore. Maybe in the Old Testament, we did fear. But in the New Testament, that's not something we do anymore. I don't think that's what these passages specifically say in their context, and I don't think that church orthodoxy teaches that either. And so I just want to go through and I want to unpack the fear of God and why we would talk about fearing God in a healthy and good way, and then I want to say what that means for us. So that's where we're going. What is the fear of God? Why should we fear God? And what does that mean for us? Perfect. Cool. I've got a couple of points as to why I think we should fear God. Firstly, God is holy. God is not like us. He is other than us. Psalm 96.9 says, Worship the God in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Exodus 15.11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's little g for gods. Idols. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. In Isaiah 61, we see this picture of Isaiah looking at the throne room of heaven and he is awestruck. And the angels are going round the throne of God singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is not like us. He is pure. He is above all things. That alone should make us in awe and fear of him. That he is perfect and pure. I don't know about you, but when I look at the perfect purity of God, it just reminds me that I am so, I fall so short of that. 1 Timothy 6 tells us, He alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. Not great light. Not a light that's slightly blinding when you walk out of a building. Unapproachable light. God's mere existence is alien to us. Even those of us who are made in his image can never fully understand the majesty and wonder and the scale of God. I always think about it, it's like, imagine that you lived in a two-dimensional world and you looked at a dice. You would just see one number. You couldn't see all the different facets of a dice. In the same way, we are almost looking at God 
in less than the dimensions he lives in. We cannot understand the scale and the wonder and the majesty of who he is. And I don't know about you, but that, that scares me. Not in the sense of I want to run away from it, but there is something other, an alien, that is truly, heart-wrenchingly wonderful, awesome in the traditional sense of full of awe and frightening. God is worthy of fear, not just a begrudging respect, not just a wonder like we have when we look at the night sky. You know, when you look in a, there's no sort of street lights around, you look at the night sky and you think, oh my goodness, this vast space. Not even that. It's a wonder that respects his station and who he is. He's all-powerful. We looked at that earlier. We were singing earlier. He is all-powerful. He is able to do all things. And that's great if you are with him. But if you are against him, he doesn't stop being all-powerful and able to do all things. For those who stand against God, he is terrifying. And he stands against all sin and evil and is the judge of all sin and evil. Nothing escapes his sight and no excuse will be able to be laid at his feet on the day of judgment. As we've said, he's holy. He is also good. His character is good. And he upholds the vulnerable and he opposes the proud. That is the God that we worship, a God who is powerful beyond measure, who lifts up the vulnerable and opposes the proud. And that's great if you're the vulnerable. That's not great if you're the proud. Ken spoke last week out of Jonah, and there was just a verse that really just struck me as I was thinking about this. In Jonah 1, I'll read it from the... uh, Read it from the screen. Actually, no, I'll read it from here. Where are we starting? You haven't got Jonah 1? That's my mistake. No worries. Here we go. So Jonah is in the bottom of the boat, and they wake Jonah up. There's a storm brewing. Ken spoke about that last week. And they say to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Remember, they were crying out to their own idols and gods. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Even to these fishermen who had many gods, there is this awestruck wonder and fear that Jonah would run away from the God of all of creation. There is an awareness that comes into their brain that Jonah has done something truly terrible here, 
And he's not just done it against any old small g god idol. He has done it against the Lord of all creation. And the Lord of all creation is now standing at loggerheads with Jonah. And that is not a position that they want to be bystanders of. Psalm 46, 8 to 10. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The splendor of God in opposition to his enemies in all areas is a scary prospect. I know I've come in hard this morning, but I want you to be aware that this is the God that we worship. This is the same God that we speak, who loves us, who tenderly draws us near to him, who seeks and pursues us. He is not those things in spite of being terrifying and fearful and wonderful and splendid and holy. He is those things because he is those things. But what about Jesus? But he can't, okay, you may say that about God the Father. You may read through the Old Testament. You may be a non-Christian here this morning, or maybe a Christian. You're thinking, actually, I've read through the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. The God of the Old Testament does seem pretty smitey. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. In Mark 4, 35 to 41, we read about how the disciples are on this boat going across the Sea of Galilee and this storm whips up. And they're terrified. They run to Jesus. And they say, teacher, do you not care we are perishing? And he awakes and he just goes, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then they, it says this. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's not and they were filled with great relief because their buddy Jesus had helped them. They were with great fear. Because by Jesus calming the wind and the waves, he was declaring to them, I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the triune God, the only one who is able to calm the winds and the waves because they are my creation. And that is frightening. Does it mean that they run away from Jesus? Does it mean they jump off the boat? No. If anything, I reckon they stayed a little closer to Jesus. So God opposes the proud. And to those who he opposes, he is terrifying. And we were once opposed to him. I don't know what you think of as sin. Maybe you think of it as the bad things that you do against other people. Sin is first and foremost 
opposition to God. First and foremost, it is saying, I don't want to do it your way, I want to do it my way. Now, from what I've said before, can you understand why that might be a tricky problem for us to be in? (laughs) We were in direct opposition to God. And we were fully worth his wrath and his judgment. That is our position. That was our position. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your saviour, that is the position that you are in this morning. You have stood against God and said, I want to do this my way. And God goes, okay. But for those in Christ this morning, and that can be all of us, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, has been poured out on the cross on Jesus. When Jesus hung there on that cross, he took all the judgment, all the punishment. The Bible says he became sin. All our past, present, and future sins. And when he died, the punishment for that sin was paid. And because of that, we can now approach a holy, perfect, pure God. And the Bible says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not just we can scrape in and hope he doesn't notice us. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And if this morning you, you, you haven't grasped that yet, or there's something about that that you don't understand, please, 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 I beg you, come talk to me or someone, grab an elder, grab someone you came with, grab a Christian, because it is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. This holy God is with open arms, waiting to embrace you. And we can now approach God because of what he has done. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. And this is true throughout scripture. You might be thinking, Okay, so did God change his mind? When he got halfway through the Bible, did he change his mind and think, oh, actually, no, I want to save these people? No. This has been the truth throughout all of Scripture. God has always known since the fall, since Genesis 3, he has always wanted to be in relationship with his people, and he has known that this has to look a certain way because of who he is and because the state his people are in. Throughout scripture, the holiness laws in Leviticus, the rules about touching the Ark of the Covenant, people leaning and grabbing it and dying straight away, these are all, the rules he put in place are all that a holy God must put in place 
if he wants his people to approach him without dying, because he is under no illusion of the state in which we are and were in. Levitic- Sorry, Leviticus 19. I'm really struggling with the word Leviticus this morning. Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now part of that is so that they may be a light to others, but first and foremost, it's because God wants a people drawn to himself, to his heart. And for them to approach him, they must be holy. Because otherwise they can't come near to him. And God wants you to draw near to him this morning. And he wanted his people to draw near to him then. And so he puts these things in place so that his people may approach him. Moses wants to look on the face of God. Moses, God says, no, that's not a good idea. But you may look at my back as I walk past. God loves Moses' heart in that, but he's like, no, look, you can't do it the way you want to do it. We have to do it the way I'm going to do it, otherwise there's going to be problems. Isaiah, I spoke about earlier, sees this picture of heaven and just screams, I am a man of unclean lips, amongst the people of unclean lips. What happens? An angel takes a coal from the brosier and comes and touches his lips. And this story of God taking his people on this journey, wanting to be close to them and wanting to be near them and wanting them to approach him in holiness, because that's what he deserves and he, he needs, but he, needs, he wants them to come near to him. This is then almost the pinnacle is Jesus. The pinnacle of a holy God reaching out to his people and saying, come near to me like this. The pinnacle is he goes, I will come near to you like that. The wonder and the splendor of the incarnation is a holy God coming to us so that way we may be made pure and clean and righteous. And the wonder of how we can approach the throne of grace with thanksgiving, the wonder with which we can be held as children of the Most High, That is why we sing and praise and whoop and clap and cheer. Because our hearts have been given the most radical, like undeserving change. And that just, you can't forget that. It can't be forgotten. But has God stopped being holy? Has he stopped being in splendor? No. He is still frighteningly powerful, loving, beyond anything that we can fully understand. We're going to have eternity to try and understand God, and we're not going to get close. In Jesus, he has made himself known, but there is still this glory and splendor of the Godhead that we are in awe of. And that is what it means for us as Christians to be in the fear of God. I've got this great uh, picture, which I've used before. Really love it. It comes from the Lion King. And Simba and Nala and Zazu have gone to the elephant's graveyard. 
and they've been attacked by these hyenas. And that's not a picture of them in fear of the hyenas. That is the picture when, with a roar, Simba's father leaps over and starts smacking them. And they run away, fleeing, and he is roaring in protection of his son. And that's the face that Simba pulls when he sees his father. It's not smug. It's not, oh yeah, my dad's got this sorted. There is a fear and awe in Simba's face as he sees the power of his father on his side. Likewise, C.S. Lewis talks about it in Narnia. The classic, we use it a lot. Is he safe? No, but he's good. Aslan, in this picture, is meant to represent Jesus. Is he safe? No, but he is good. Our praise, wonder, awe is not in spite of God being worthy of our fear. It is because he is worthy of our fear. Our fear should point even more to how incredible and spectacular the cross and the gospel is. So, for us today, what does this mean for us at Christchurch? Number one, the fear of the Lord and understanding of him in all of his glory should put everything else into perspective. Everything in our lives, which are so... And I don't want to demean this when I say they feel so important because the things of our lives are important and God does say that he cares about the things of our lives. Please don't hear that I'm saying like, oh, you think you've got a problem. Like, I'm not saying that at all. But when you look at God and his majesty and his power, it should bring everything into perspective of that we are finite and he is infinite. There's this great painting. I heard about this in the prayer course with, with Pete Greig. And it's this painting. If you don't know the story, it's that Mary, Jesus, and then two apostles. Should have checked that one. And they used to look at this painting, and it's really weird perspective-wise. Like, it, the mountains look just a bit too tall, and um, it, it doesn't quite work. And people were like, well, why is it known as this great masterpiece? Because it's not that great. And one day, an art critic was looking at it, and he just thought, wait a minute, this is wrong. And in the middle of a crowded gallery, he got on his knees, and he looked up, and the whole painting shifted into perspective. And that's what it's like when we kneel in humble servitude before God, knowing that we are adopted sons and daughters, but in awe and wonder when we kneel before a holy, wonderful, pure God, everything in our life shifts into perspective. Number two, it should spur us on to greater acts of faith. We, have a, we, we worship a God who is able to do all things more than we can ask, think, or imagine. We should be bold in what we pray for. We should be bold in what we do. 
think we often, as Christians in this country, live in this weird sort of fear. Culture is, is pushing at us. What can we do? The tides, the tides of culture they're putting over us. They'll snuff the church out. What does Jesus say? I will build my church and the armies of hell will not make it through their pitiful defenses. No. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We are at the enemy's gates, not the other way around. Don't let the world and the enemy twist that in your brain, making you think that you're sort of cowering. That's not what's going on here. The victory has been won. We're just waiting for that final trumpet call. That's what's happening. I always remember hearing, I think it was Steve Braiding did it a few years ago, and he was talking about like, Christians who walk around like, you know, with this tiny little candle, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And I always remember like, being really struck by that image and being like, no, that's not what it is. We're not meant to be cowering. Jesus talks about this when he talks about persecution that will happen to his church, will happen to his disciples. And he says, be bold. Let's be spurred on to greater acts of faith in what we do, spurred on to greater acts of evangelism. When we're talking to those who oppose us, often in thought in this country more than, more than physically, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of God, the fear of the eternal judge should spur us on in what we've been given as a task to do in the gospel. And finally... It should take, make us take sin more seriously. As we fear God, we should reflect on what our sin means as opposition to him. And as I've been preparing this time and time again, I've just had God poke me about things in my life that are not, not what he wants for me. And time and time again, I've just had to lay them down and just beg for forgiveness and lay them at the cross. Not in a cowering way, but also not in a, oh, it doesn't matter way. I lay them at the cross, at the seat of the one who hung there for me in agony so that I could do that. I lay them at the seat of Christ who will judge the living and the dead. That is what it means to fear God. Christchurch, I feel that God would say that there is a battle out there needing to be carried on. Not to be won. Jesus already has done that. There are souls to win. There is revival coming. Are we ready? Do we fear the Lord or do we fear the world? I want to finish with this. Romans 8, 33, 39. We sung this earlier. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. By the way, that's that's a quote there from probably a song that was being sung at the time. The early church sung that. None of our songs say, for your sake, we're being killed, we, we are being slaughtered. Wow, that puts it into perspective, doesn't it? No, in all these things, in all these things, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor, de- nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.